This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. For many of us, the word tyranny conjures images of repressive governments and unchecked abuses of political power. But there's also another, perhaps more insidious form of coercion that has corroded American public life in recent decades. Private corporations have learned to use their vast economic power to engage in surveillance, manipulation, and control. On this episode of the Commonweal Podcast, senior editor Matt Boudway speaks with journalist Sorab Amari about how political action and government regulation can overcome these forces of private tyranny. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Matt. It's good to see you here today. Good to see you, Dominic. So before we get to your interview with Saurabh Amari, I want to mention to listeners that our website is featuring Tony Annett's review of Amari's new book, Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What We Can Do About It. That'll also be available in our January print issue. And so, Matt, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your conversation with Saurabh Amari. Yeah, uh, Saurabh Amari is a, is a well-known journalist. He uh, is the co-founding editor of an online publication called Compact, which is an interesting effort to combine a radical sort of left critique of American capitalism and neoliberalism with sort of social conservative critique of liberalism and its cultural fruits. This book from Amari is interesting because you wouldn't know unless you already knew who he was that this book was uh, written by a, a cultural conservative because he doesn't have much to say about culture war issues with which he's been associated in the past. This book focuses almost exclusively on political economy and on the question of how, uh, the ways that uh, private corporations, big employers, are allowed to abuse their power in our system because of deregulation, because of uh, bad Supreme Court decisions, and other manifestations of neoliberalism that we've all witnessed in the last generation. So Saurabh uh, sort of walked us through the argument, which is very compelling, very detailed. It's based on reporting by other journalists who have looked at, you know, cases of, of this kind of abuse where companies use non-disclosure and non-disparagement agreements, private arbitration, bankruptcy laws. They abuse our bankruptcy laws to avoid liability. And the, the upshot of all of this is that American workers are more vulnerable than ever to their employers. And the fiction behind, the, the sort of justifying fiction behind this is that because of you know, free contracts, employers and employees are on equal footing. Um, this is obviously not true, but this is the way that the Supreme Court and various uh, neoliberal politicians have justified the status quo. Well, why don't we take a listen to the conversation? Thanks, Matt. Saurabh Amari, welcome to the Commonweal Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Your new book, titled Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What to Do About It, is a different kind of book from the things that you've written most recently. A lot of our readers and listeners will be familiar with elements of the argument you make in this book. But the way you combine those elements is interesting and illuminating, I think, and the perspective from which you make this argument is also different. So that's what sets your book apart from others of its kind. Now, the key concept of the book, or one key concept, and it's the one behind the clever title, is, is private tyranny. Most of us have been educated and socialized to think of tyranny as something only repre repressive governments do. And you argue in this book that tyranny includes not only abuses of political power, but also abuses of economic power. 
and that these are omnipresent in contemporary American life as soon as you start to look around. You, you also make good use of a famous line by John Dewey. He said, if one wants to know what the condition of liberty is at a given time, one has to examine what persons can do and what they cannot do. And then you write, liberty is ultimately about power. You as an employee might be free to tell me, your oppressive employer, to take this job and shove it. But your ability to make good on this threat and survive physically afterward depends on the relative power of employers and employees in a given labor market. Maybe you could talk a little bit more about how you, your understanding of that concept has changed from, again, the perspective of somebody who approached these issues as a conservative or right-wing populist. I mean, I, I, se several disclosures to make along the way about that. One is that, as I've written elsewhere in a in a memoir, I was in my late teens and early twenties. I was a I was a college, high school slash college Trotskyist, and what that meant was a pretty rigorous education in kind of the Marxist canon. And so, so the idea, for example, that market exchange is premised on coercion that wages aren't necessarily this pristine crystallization of relative supply and demand, but rather relative bargaining power or the relative power of two classes in relation to each other. It wasn't something alien to me. What is new in terms of my own thinking about this stuff is just bringing, to, to name the elephant in the room, bringing a materialist analysis to bear to one of the sources of perhaps the, the main source of social crisis in the United States in, in the 21st century and being willing to name it more than I think other populist, curious or populist friendly conservative intellectuals have been willing to do. I, I share much of the diagnosis of, that Marxists or more broadly the left materialist tradition has of political economy, but the solution I suggest is more Catholic, actually. It's a kind of cl uh, class compromise or class reconciliation represented by movements like Christian democracy and social democracy in Europe by the New Deal order here in the United States. So it's much more of a kind of reformist mentality. And I think that in part is, or in large part, is inspired by my Catholic faith and how the church, beginning with Rerum Novarum in the 19th century, has dealt with the problem of market power, overweening market power. Again and again, as I was reading this book, I thought of the, the famous Anatoly France quote, which I'm sure came to your mind at certain points too. The law and its majestic equality forbids rich and poor alike to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal their bread. That's the point here, that political equality is void in conditions of radical economic inequality. So maybe we can start on particulars. What are the ways in the American political, in American society, in the, the begin, beginning of the 21st century, how does economic inequality undermine or even evacuate political equality? I think the first thing to mention in response to that is just that we've built a low-wage, high-benefit economy. And when we say low-wage, high-benefit, it doesn't mean that we have an economy in which the benefits from the welfare state, public benefits, are especially generous. In fact, they're quite miserly and they're means-tested. But rather, what it means is that for the working poor, that definition, obviously, in terms of how large of a, a share of American society the working poor comprise, you can put it at a third, more, four out of ten. But the bottom line is that the working poor are need about half 
almost half of the total amount of money they need to make ends meet is supplied by public benefits. So that means that they are working, but the wages that they receive are not sufficient to allow them to sustain and reproduce themselves. So obviously what we want is a high wage, low benefit economy. But the point is that when you're in that state, you are subject to a kind of dual tyranny or dual coercion. It's not just that the, the boss or the employer who can keep you on precarious wages you being ever fearful of crossing him, uh, a misunderstanding arising at work, you're falling in and so on. Any of these things can cause you to fall down a financial abyss, but also you're at the mercy of the public benefits administrator too. Like, aha, you did you use your food stamps to buy a, a pack of cigarettes or a, a six pack of beer? And so a person who is subject that way to this sort of dual coercion is not capable of exercising the formal political freedoms that are attached to his or her name as a citizen. We're talking about four out of 10 Americans being unable to come up with $400 in cash to pay for an exigency. About 12% can't pay for the exigency at all. We're talking about an economy in which half of fast food workers have to rely on public benefits and a quarter of college adjunct teachers have to rely on public welfare. So just and now we're talking about the lower rungs of the labor market, but just low wages themselves are something that eat away at your ability to be a citizen. You're just hurriedly going from one thing to another, trying to survive. You don't have any of the actual, as opposed to formal freedoms that are uh, essential to self-government. That's just one example. There's much else in the book, but I think focusing on the working poor puts things in a stark light. And you do focus on the working poor by actually taking particular cases as the anchor of each of your chapters about a different dimension of this problem. So you devote uh, the first part, which is the longer part of the book, to surveying instances of private tyranny. And maybe a, a good place to start here would be with your discussion of the way hedge funds and private equity firms have hollowed out what used to be public services like firefighting and ambulance services. And you argue the public sector pensions have actually been used to undermine the public sector. So people who work in, as firefighters or for public ambulance services are paying into pension funds that are being used by private equity to fund pro profiteering enterprises that end up making our public system redundant and our private system not very good. You summarized it uh, very well, Matthew. So here we're talking about actually a a vicious cycle that impacts not just Americans as recipients or users of firefighting and, and public emergency services, but also the, the workers in that industry and then workers, meaning emergency first responders, and then the wider economy as such. So privatized firefighting is it has been around since the kind of companies that do it systematically have been around since the 1940s it makes sense by the way in case of for example hollywood studios who need a dedicated firefighter on site or people who are landowners or in far flung mountain west areas where there's no kind of incorporated area uh, governmental entity or tax paying entity that would supply and fund firefighting services but more recently, especially in the wake of the Great Recession, pr private profiteering firms have dramatically expanded their scope in this industry, such that in certain rural areas, if you call 911, you're very likely to be routed to a private provider. Ambulances, likewise, 
the including in in large cities increasingly have, have come under the control of a relatively few private equity and and hedge funds. Now, why is that a problem? Well, first is that uh, private equity and hedge funds, typically the way they manage firms is not the normal capitalist way that people think, okay, you own a company, you invest in, you invest some of your revenue in maintaining its capital stock, growing it and maintaining its workforce, et cetera. It's this much more extractive model where you're managing for cash flow, as it's called, and it dramatically heightens the, the risk of uh, bankruptcy. I mean, we know that as a firm, you're several times more likely to go bankrupt if you're um, owned by private equity because of typical asset stripping behavior. You're just trying to get cash out of the business rather than actually investing in it, which a traditional capitalist owner would do. And that's bad enough in the case of companies like Sears, which went under as a result of this form of management. But when it comes to firms that in, supply a life and death service, your house is burned down or grandma has, is having a seizure or what have you and needs a, an emergency transportation to hospital, it's all the worse. And then what's hidden inside this is the fact that the pension funds of firefighters and emergency service workers themselves are increasingly investing their contributors' funds, in other words, their workers' capital in private equity and hedge fund firms that are in the business of privatizing those jobs. And it's not something that's at all hidden. It's just, you just, ha so you just have to know which private emergency service firms are owned by which hedge funds or which private equity uh, firms, and then see which public pension plans invested their contributors' retirement funds in those in his hedge funds or private equity funds. What that means is basically what I describe as a self-privatizing investment whose ultimate result is the obviously the marginal loss of of working class jobs that are higher wage and more secure and also that kind of investment by public pension plans uh, roughly half of all all the money invested in private equity over the past few years have come from uh, public pension funds and so what that does is it fuels the wider corrosion of the real economy where we actually produce useful goods and services at the hands of Wall Street. So in other words, these governmental authorities are not only undermining their own workers' jobs directly, but more indirectly, they're feeding the financialization of the wider economy. Yeah, private equity and hedge funds come up in several of the chapters as agents of this kind of private tyranny, this version of financialized capitalism that has turned out to be so predatory and that really does exercise abusive power over American workers in ways that they themselves often don't understand because it's become the system has become so opaque, as in the case of investment funds. Another good chapter, and, and one that I found especially interesting and surprising, has to do with the history of private arbitration. Uh, and the way arbitration has been used and abused by corporations to basically bully workers into dropping their their claims against their employers. Maybe you could start by saying something about how this the tradition of arbitration starts in the Middle Ages. I, I found that very interesting. I may have come across that somewhere before, but if so, I, don't, I didn't remember it. And the way you, you make the connection between that and the, the modern history of arbitration in the United States is fascinating, I thought. Yeah, actually, it's worth noting that it used to be that basically the Catholic Church was the largest arbitration provider, <laughs> the largest and then most important, and in many cases, the sole arbit arbitration provider in the Middle Ages. So, for example, in medieval England, there used to be what's called Law Day, and that's the day you 
went to court to lodge litigation against some uh, other party. And obviously it was adversarial. And then there was what they called Love Day when you typically went to a neutral mediator, almost always the Catholic Church, to resolve disputes between two parties. And the benefit of the latter of Love Day or arbitration mediation was that it was, uh, first of all, it was faster. It didn't have all the kind of procedural cumbersomeness of litigation. And because it wasn't adversarial, the two parties relationship in the medieval times, we're talking about two, a feud between two landowning families or what have you, their relationship would be preserved because of the nature of the proceeding, which is not adversarial. And of course, the, the church could rule on the entire feud between the two parties rather than a narrow few topics which courts had jurisdiction over and in others where they didn't. So it was convenient. It was peaceful. It was uh, very attractive. Sounds good. So what went wrong? How did we get how do we get from that to Ernst and Young and Stephen Morris, the, one of the cases you describe in the book? <laughs> yeah. So w- 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 the way we get to that is, OK, so we have the rise of capitalism and it brings with it a much more litigious society. People try to use arbitration, but then they expect from it the same litigiousness or adversarial quality that they expect in the courts, in the formal court system. So the courts are very hesitant to allow arbitration to develop, in part because judges see it as a kind of pseudo litigation. And they worried actually about the way that the process could be abused by stronger parties to basically put weaker ones in a kind of take it or leave it type position. So in the 1920s, under the auspices of, among others, then Treasury Secretary Herbert Hoover, who promoted this law, and uh, the Chamber of Commerce and others, the, the U.S. Congress passed a law called the Federal Arbitration Act, which was whose purpose was to force the federal courts to, to recognize uh, arbitration and to uphold arbitral awards. One, in other words, if two parties had agreed to bind themselves to, to resolve their disputes with commercial arbitration, federal courts would not have to accept that and uphold the arbitral agreement and award if there's an award. All fine, very good. But here's the crucial part is that people who promoted that law, including Hoover, were very clear that it was meant for merchants of relatively equal bargaining power. It wasn't meant for employment context. In fact, the Federal Arbitration Act includes a provision excluding workers. It specifically excludes workers who do interstate transportation because back then it was thought that all other work came under state law. So it was irrelevant to to the Federal Arbitration Act. So it, it was very clear to everyone involved that this would not be applied to employment context precisely because in that context, you would have a take it or leave it situation where a worker has a complaint against his employer, but because of the vast disparity in bargaining power between employer and employee, the employee would basically be barred from seeking recourse to the courts or uh, seeking to vindicate his or her rights in the courts. So, and that was fine. It was basically upheld that way. We had a Federal Arbitration Act that came in 1925, and then we had all sorts of New Deal statutes like the Fair Labor Standards Act and the the Wagner Act, which encouraged workers to act collectively, and the two didn't seem to bother each other. But beginning in the 1980s, the Supreme Court, mainly conservatives on the U.S. Supreme Court, the Reagan Revolution at the high court, began to expand the range of cases in which 
arbitration was applied in situations. And this culminates in 2018 in a case called Morris versus Ernst & Young, where a low-level accountant at Ernst & Young, someone who is not a CPA, who is an, an hourly wage worker doing basic tasks, has a wage dispute. He he argues that he has he's been not paid the overtime wages he would be owed under the Fair Labor Standards, Standards Act. And so he seeks to bring suit to recover unpaid wages. But because the amount that he's trying to recover is relatively small, the only way that he can rationally and economically vindicate his rights is if he can band with other similarly situated workers to bring a class action suit. Now, remember, the Fair Labor Standards Act is one of those New Deal laws that are explicitly aimed at encouraging collective action. Nevertheless, our Supreme Court held is a narrow 5-4 decision written by Justice Gorsuch. I call it one of the cruelest decisions ever handed down by the Supreme Court. It held that workers like Morris had to do the sort of single individual arbitration that the, that the company had put in place. Ernst & Young acknowledged that it would have cost the employee $200,000 to singly, individually arbitrate his dispute when he was trying to recover $2,000 and then maybe a, another $2,000 in uh, punitive damages. In other words, in order to recover $4,000, he would have to spend $200,000 in the arbitration process. So obviously, that's a, it's a really unfair outcome. And it's precisely based on this theme we've been talking about the whole conversation of um, the illusion of formal freedom versus um, the reality in agents' relative power. So Morris had been an employee for several months at Ernst & Young before one day the Ernst & Young sent an email to all employees saying, henceforth, if you seek to bring suit against us, you, you have to go through individual arbitration. You can't do class action and you can't do class, even class arbitration, meaning teaming up for arbitration. Now, the, according to kind of laissez-faire theory or classical economic theory, at that point, Morris and others like him could re renegotiate their con contract. And if they couldn't, then they were always free to walk away to a better job elsewhere. In reality, Matthew, as, as an employee, I know you've been an employee, I've been an employee, that, you, that doesn't even cross your mind because tomorrow you have to pay your mortgage. You have to pay for your elder care. You have to pay for child care. You can't just say, oh, okay, well, I'll renegotiate this kind of odd provision in my employment agreement. Nevertheless, our Supreme Court, Justice Gorsuch said, well, uh, the two parties freely entered into an agreement to arbitrate their disputes as though there's this kind of parallel ability to push back and Morris could go to his supervisor and say, hey, you sent that arbitration agreement. I disagree with this X, Y, or Z provision. Of course, that's not how reality works at all. But these kind of fictions of, of symmetrical power or fictions of symmetrical liberty are used to hollow out actual liberty in our court system and the ability of people to vindicate statutory rights they otherwise would have under law. We'll have more of Matt's conversation with Sora Bamari in a minute. But first, I want to extend an invitation to join me and the Commonweal staff for a book launch event for poet and essayist Christian Wyman. He'll read from and discuss his new book, Zero at the Bone, 50 Entries Against Despair. 
That will be happening at W83 in New York City on December 12th at 6 p.m. You can register in advance online at cwlmag.org slash Wyman hyphen event. How has the evolution of your thinking about political economy and and the role it plays in American society and its relationship to our electoral politics changed as your religious conversion has taken hold in the last few years? How has your growing familiarity with, for example, Catholic social teaching, you already mentioned Rerum Navarum, how has that informed your thinking about what's going on in the companies that rule the United States in, in 2023? Yeah. So when I was received into the church, I was instantly welcomed. I was an editorialist for the Wall Street Journal. I was instantly welcomed into this world of conservative Catholicism, but a very specific kind of conservative Catholicism that had created this seemingly perfect synthesis between the Catholic faith and the kind of papal magisterium on one hand and basically Paul Ryanism on the other. And so but the more I drank in what the popes have taught about social justice, about political economy, the less tenable that synthesis appeared to me. So I think that's the, the main thing in terms of how it's come to inform my thinking about political economic issues. And then I think the second one is the reconciliatory posture of my politics. And I both mean that in terms of how I act in the public square, which is increasingly, I try to be less polemical than I'm known to be, but also what I think politics should do. I've become a great believer in this idea of reforming in the center, of trying to not necessarily win deals, but good enough deals for left and right. Those elements of left and right that both share certain concerns about where our society are heading whether it's Liz Warren and J.D. Vance or Hawley and Senator Sanders, they may, they come from fundamentally different worldviews, but can they agree on some kind of important reforms that would address both the, the discontent that they both represent, even as, as neither side is perfectly happy? I and What I mean by that is more of a kind of posture about how to think about politics that I think comes from my reading of an appreciation for the Catholic tradition. It's this kind of reforming middle, not being comfortably a partisan of one side or other, avoiding that ticket mentality where you think, well, if I oppose abortion, I must also prefer a, a lower marginal tax rate. Why should those two, two necessarily go along? Or um, if I'm worried about kind of social alienation, I must also you know, support XYZ element of the Republican platform that actually drives social alienation, if you think about it. So it's very difficult because you're never in any part of a, you're not a team player on either side in, a, in an easy way. But it's also, I mean, it, it, it feels intellectually honest. It feels like it has greater inner integrity than other formations I've been a part of. So I'll keep at it. You describe yourself, I think, at one point as an oddball pro-labor right-winger. Yeah, and my, my question is, 90% of people who consider themselves on the left would agree with 90% of this book. And 90% of people who vote for Republicans would find at least two-thirds of it questionable. 
despite all the caveats and the fact that you make no secret in the book that you are a conservative, that you're coming at this from the vantage point of social conservatism. And of course, along with the quotes from people like David Harvey and Chantal Mouffe and Wendy Brown, you have quotes from Catholics encyclicals, but also quotes from uh, other renegade right-wing populists, people like your mentor, Michael Lind. So is there a moment at which, just for the purposes of pragmatic, prudential political decisions, people who may consider themselves social conservatives nevertheless decide that the real action when it comes to political economy, which is where a lot of Supreme Court decisions and regulatory policy and federal law, that's where the rubber hits the road. When do you just have to, I don't know, <laughs> uh, vote for people who disagree with you about a range of cultural issues? You describe at one point this kind of feckless, bougie leftism that you call culturalist, but isn't there a culturalist right that is so concerned about cultural issues that that these issues of political economy, it's not even that it necessarily disagrees with what you have to say, it's just that this becomes epiphenomenal to the core project of advancing a culture war agenda. No, there totally is. There's lifestyle leftism or culturalism. Lifestyle leftism is a term I borrow from Zara Wagenknecht, the uh, former leader of Germany's left party, who what he's, what he's talking about that is a progressivism that only seems to have a lecturing, hectoring tone from, from on high, telling working class people that their consumer choices are wrong or that their um, beliefs about X, Y, and Z are wrong. And it's, uh, I think it's a, a great force in, in, in uh, across the developed world. It's a great driver of the de-alignment between working class people and traditional parties of the center left and left. But there is also, it's important to know, what I call faux neopopulism or fake neopopulism, which is a phenomenon that has taken hold on the Republican on the side of the Republican Party, where it, it recognizes obviously that working class people are coming to the party, but then when it comes when the rubber meets the road in terms of policy, it continues to advance, as for example, Ron DeSantis does, so-called entitlement reform, which really means just slashing benefits and in, in DeSantis's case, privatizing benefits as well. So it's the same old libertarian kind of neoliberal agenda, but now dressed up in especially aggressive culture warring. So I I completely I completely recognize that. And, and for me personally, it's become very difficult because I care very much about these political economic issues. And precisely because I recognize that some of the or many of the cultural ills, while they don't completely reduce to economic issues, they have a profound economic substrate. So like conservatives are they fret that marriage and family formation rates are collapsing, that uh, people are alienated, et cetera. And I share that. I think it's better for human beings to live in family. It's better for them to be married. It's better to have children and so on. But they pay very little attention to what role the political economy may have to play in why people are behaving the way they're doing. So that makes my position on the right ever more tenuous. I do see some green shoots. I think, for example, uh, there's a trio of senators, Vance, Hawley, and, and Rubio, who are trying to be serious about this stuff, who are trying to be pro-labor in a meaningful way. But that there really are green shoots. There are exceptions to a much larger norm, which is just the same old Republican Party, as Reaganite as ever, but now with a, a really unpleasant kind of cultural sheen on top as well. So I've said, it's, it's, I wrote a Newsweek uh, essay when I launched the book, basically saying that puts me in a position of knowing, not knowing what to do, but also make, puts me excitingly in a position where I can imagine 
other formations coming about. Reformist coalitions of left and right in this country are not new. They, we've had them before. Where I think where it's like what I personally think we should all reckon with this problem of a Democratic Party that is in some ways de-aligned from a working class and a Republican Party that has working class voters but doesn't have a working class agenda. We, we should all reckon with that is the fact that at least for now, a significant share of working class people are moving over to the Republican Party and that they, they that's just happening. And so they need to have an organized force within the Republican Party as much as, for example, small business does. Right now, as it is, the, the, the driving force of Republican vision for things like political economy is small and regional capital. It's not even big capital. It's like the owner of a kind of typical regional tire distribution chain in one part of the country, like the Research Triangle of North Carolina or something like that. So that's the kind of classical Republican base. There are now these working class people in there, but they don't have an organized force voice within the party. They vote for it, but they don't get what they want out of it. And I think that's a problem that both parties need to to reckon with. And I think if if we had a labor movement that was a bit more independent, that wasn't as closely tied to the Democratic Party, then the workers who are voting for the GOP, they can become an organized constituency within the party. And uh, that's very important. Now, why is labor so closely tied to the Democratic Party? Well, it's because for the past two generations, it's only gotten the back of the hand from Republicans. So there's only one party that it sees as an imperfect refuge, namely the Democrats. But that's not a good dynamic. It's much better to have both parties trying to compete for the labor vote and both of them trying to offer something better. I think that's a healthier dynamic to to aspire to. But the bottom line is, I may sour on the Republican Party and have and wrote an essay basically saying, I don't think it can ever be a working class vehicle. But the fact is that lots of other Americans aren't souring in the way I am, and they are voting for the Republican Party in the hope of getting something out of it. And unless the Republican Party changes, they won't get that, and they will just fall into typical apathy and become ever more depoliticized and disengaged, which is not healthy for the country or for the economy. Thank you, Saurabh. Saurabh Amari's new book is called Tyranny, Inc., How Private Power Crushed American Liberty and What We Can Do About It. It's available now from Penguin Random House. Anthony Annett's review of the book is available on our website, and it will appear in the January print issue of Commonweal. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek, and the Commonwealth staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>